Yang's vision was actually first and foremost about forestalling an apocalyptic scenario that he saw in the future. The danger of the machine learning black box is that it's capable of generating potentially ever-increasing degrees of complexity that not only obscure the mechanisms and processes by which it's executing whatever function it's assigned, but that ultimately will end up making it harder and harder to say what the hell the thing was supposed to be doing in the first place. I think people ought to be skeptical of collective models of control because they often conceal concentrations of power that would rather not be named. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Jacob Siegel, a senior writer for Tablet, the writer of the Scroll newsletter, and host of the Manifesto podcast with novelist Phil Cly. We discuss iconoclasm, curiosity, technology, centralization, Andrew Yang, post-liberalism, Curtis Yarvin, bureaucracy, Bidenism, the secular and religious worlds, and the importance of quarrel. This is the first of three episodes that round off this season of From the New World, where I find myself with much greater disagreements with my guests. You might agree with my position, or you might agree with theirs. In any case, I hope you understand and seek to learn from our exchange, whether it's on the topic of this episode or far more controversial ones in the future. Jacob and I discussed this explicitly near the end of the episode, and we find great value in speaking with each other despite our disagreements. I hope you will too. Here's Jacob Siegel. Something that really strikes me about Tablet in general, and your writing in specific, is that you have a kind of curiosity for wild or deep figures in both the present and in the past. So that leads us to our first question. When was the first time you were interested in an obscure figure, and who was it? I appreciate that you pick up on that. It certainly comports with how I think of myself. Um, and yeah, it's it's an interesting question. The only thing I can say for sure is that it would have had to do with my older brother, Harry, who formed um, most of my early tastes. And I think, you know, to some extent, my interest in wild and deep figures comes from him. Um, and so I'm just thinking like, you know, there was a whole kind of, <laughs> there, were, there are all these people to choose from it. He was really into this uh, English group called KLF for a while. He always had like very good sort of sophisticated musical tastes. I had much more um, childish musical tastes, but he was into this kind of English. I don't even know how to describe them. They were a kind of subversive English guerrilla situationist Marxist dance group who um, one time burned a million pounds on an island somewhere. And oh, my. <laughs> yeah, so KLF comes to mind, but they, they're not – I feel like it's not a great answer. I was certainly into Philip K. Dick, I think, um, before he had achieved the popularity he has now. But, I mean, he was always a mainstream figure after 
um, Blade Runner. So I have to think about that a bit more and get back to you. I just, the only thing I can say for sure is that um, it would have come from my brother. I almost feel like there are too many choices and um, I'm not sure which direction to go with this, but it, it felt to me from a very young age. Like, yeah, we can like, bring this to the present if that's easier. Yeah, What's your sure. methodology now for thinking about these kind of figures? How do you find them? Why do you look for them? Ah, uh, my methodology. I wouldn't say that I have a methodology. I would say that I have a consistent curiosity that leads me to them. The methodology, it's not present either in how I look for them or in how I think of them. Uh, frankly, I, I would say that the internet has made it easier to stumble into these figures than it once was. It's easier now to to feel like you've uh, come upon some obscure thinker incidentally. And that wasn't the case when I was a kid. I mean, this is a familiar story, but there used to be a kind of a trail that you would follow, a more deliberate trail that you would follow. And uh, so, you know, you would find one writer, that writer would lead you to another. You know, I got into a, a prison writer named um, Malcolm Braley, who wrote this really brilliant novel, this kind of uh, uh, modern uh, 19th century modern, not modernist modern um, social novel of prison life. And he was in prison for something like four decades called On the Yard. And through Braley, for instance, and through my interest in Braley, I then discovered people who, other people who were also into Braley, which led me to other um, sort of more obscure crime writers. And you know, that was a process that could take years sometimes, you know, to find a handful of writers could take years because it wasn't like once you discovered a name, you were able to achieve some kind of automatic intimacy with that name or be able to feign intimacy. Now you come across a name online and it's very easy to Wikipedia the name and feel like you've learned enough. You've sort of, you've made contact with the obscure, you know? And that wasn't the case. So it would take a long time. And uh, it was just a sense of pursuit. The methodology was just uh, the sense that there was something out there, that the something out there was not fully expressed by the establishment figures. And that there was, I mean, I had a sense from a young age that there was, um, there were forms of truth that had to be repressed to make uh, routine life possible. You know, I just felt that. That's a very big line. There are forms of truth that have to be repressed to make life possible. Well, this is the whole idea behind uh, Proust and a remembrance of things past, for instance, that the flood, I mean, if you think of it, um, we're all of us exposed to the infinite at every moment of our lives. And in order not to be overwhelmed by that, in order not to be rendered mute and immobile by that contact with the infinite, we have to, um, 
we have to delimit things. We have to um, we have to be sometimes uh, a bit brute with reality in order to to reduce it to recognizable patterns that we can deal with. And, and you know, in order not just to be overwhelmed by the flood of sensory input and the flood of intellectual and emotional input. Our bodies do that for us. Or, you know, we're limited by our physicality and, and we're also um, limited in ways that we're not fully conscious of by the kind of routine processes of our thinking and emotional lives. And I mean, I don't, I don't mean to suggest at all that as a kid, I had this all worked out in some kind of rigorous philosophical sense. What I had from an early age was a sense that there was something else out there, some other kind of um, something outside, like the routine of my own life, of my family life, the lives of my friends that was uh, a deeper um, and uh, potentially dangerous, dangerous forms of knowledge and experience. And that was thrilling. And then yeah, in, ter- so- in terms of how I just to finish the thought, in terms of like how I approach those figures, then the what the thing that I tried to do is just to approach them on their own terms. This is what I. This is methodological. I mean, insofar as I have a methodology, it's that I do my best not to impose um, certain. Uh, not just normative expectations, but uh, but not not to impose my own prejudices and biases on these figures, and to try and get what they're trying to say in the way that they mean it, and then I make my judgments afterwards. I'm hardly non-judgmental, but I try to at least experience it in the first contact in the way that it was intended. Right. I mean, there's a very strong tension there, right? Some things are buried because perhaps it's better not to pay attention to them. But now we're uncovering those things. We're finding them. What do you think about that? Do you ever think that maybe these figures would be better off obscured? Ah, uh, I don't. Better off for whom? Better off for the society at large. <laughs> better off for them. I mean, you know, famously, Kafka didn't want his papers published. Right? This is the sort of um, the famous and archetypal illustration of the one aspect of the paradox and the dilemma that you're talking about. You know, is it worth violating the wishes, the explicitly expressed wishes? of the individual artist in order to provide humanity with whatever benefit or even just the individual reader with whatever benefit they've derived from Kafka's work. I, you know, I, I'm inclined to say yes, because, uh, because um, it's been so enriching and because it seems like that, that dying wish reflected a set of personal concerns that might have been like that Kafka's hangups about this, his personal hangups about this, which 
are directly related to the subject matter in his work might have been alleviated to some extent, at least by knowing uh, how much uh, how much influence he'd had in his work. Though, of course, that could be wrong. So, you know, I, it's hard to say in that case. In the, in the larger sense or in the societal sense of would it be better if certain figures, like let's say, for instance, somebody I'm interested in, it's the German um, it's, uh, part of what was known as the conservative revolution in Germany. It's the writer named Ernst Junger, who was a decorated German uh, soldier in the First World War, served in Paris during the Second World War, and was a kind of uh, right-wing, mystical, anti-Nazi figure, and also uh, a quite brilliant writer, in my estimation, in the illiberal tradition. Would it be better if somebody like Junger was, had remained obscure because in becoming popular, he's exposed certain philosophical vulnerabilities in, in liberalism that have made, uh, made the maintenance of the kind of pleasant liberal status quo more tenuous? I tend to think no, that uh, that he, rather than being the cause of the instability of the liberal system, is just a, a an especially um, an especially insightful guide to why it's unstable now. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's I could interpret your question in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's also like the classic you know, cool kid, um, I liked this band better before everyone else knew them thing. Would it be better if, if it stayed obscure so it didn't get um, swarmed by the dumb masses? You know, I don't know, sometimes, yes, but uh, it seems like a selfish way of looking at things. Yeah, so I want to ask about uh, exactly one of these liberal figure, or sorry, exactly one of these obscure figures uh, right now. And uh, this was one of your this was one of your columns that I found particularly interesting. Uh, so I'll quiz you on your own work a little bit. Uh, this is a political figure. Name starts with a Y and you described him as the first genuinely post-liberal figure in American political life. Uh, who is this? I almost said Yarvin, but it's uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> almost, almost. Yeah, so uh, the the presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Right. <laughs> so, uh why is Yang the first genuinely post-liberal figure in American political life? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I meant to, um when I said that, but I I think um uh, I think of him as a genuinely post-liberal figure insofar as the American tradition of um, a kind of liberalism that had to do both with uh, respect for private property and for what we now think of as civil libertarian causes like freedom of religion and, and freedom of expression and uh, and also finally a kind of broad 
tolerance, that all of that was connected to a particular American political tradition that's largely gone now. And Yang, rather than trying to summon that back in some way, which is what virtually every other candidate does, right? So if you take like Trump and Biden, for instance, each in their own way, or Trump and Clinton for that matter, each in their own ways is trying to harken back to an earlier period of uh, American social stability and prosperity. I mean, this is explicit, right? Make America great again is explicitly a call to restore an earlier historical period. Um, Clinton in her own way was trying to do the same thing. Biden uh, very explicitly trying to sort of restore the Obama era dispensation. Yang was doing something different, which was to point towards an apocalyptic scenario in the near future, which is the obliteration of working class jobs in America by a wave of artificial intelligence that will lead to uh, massive convulsions that will tear apart whatever remains of the social fabric and, uh, and have not just, um, you know, not just uh, bad consequences or deleterious consequences, but will be genuinely volatile and unpredictable and could mean the end of representative democracy, let's say, that Yang's vision was actually first and foremost about forestalling an apocalyptic scenario that he saw in the future. And the way he wanted to do that, quite interestingly, uh, was by essentially striking a deal with the kind of masters of the tech economy and with uh, the working class to protect and preserve uh, some social status and uh, some buy-in in the political system for the working class but through this UBI, through, uh, I forget what he called it, he had a different... The freedom dividend, $1,000 a month, right. yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which that's like very boomer branding, the freedom dividend. But he had a, a very uh, distinctly unboomer approach for the reasons I just laid out. Not backward looking at all, but not not simply forward looking in a sort of hopeful liberal sense, right? Because liberalism is premised in philosophical and, and epistemological terms. Liberalism is premised on the ability of human reason to the, the ability of individuals through the exercise of their reason to secure their own progress and, and their own happiness at an individual level and then in historical terms to achieve the progress of all humanity. But if you're saying that unless we do something drastic, the machines are going to take over and we're going to have massive riots and we're going to have mass unemployment, I mean, that's not a liberal vision at all. Now, his solution was this kind of uh, like tech-enabled social democratic bargain or compromise, rather, where you achieve social democratic ends 
by getting the oligarchs to subsidize social democracy, which is not that much different from uh, aspects of the New Deal, actually. But yeah, so that's what I was getting at. Um, and the fact that he he made that apparent in his style. And so like, you know, it sounds a bit grandiose to say, oh, he's the first post-liberal figure, or, or maybe it just sounds like, uh, you know, sort of the use of a fashionable term, and I wouldn't deny that entirely. But there is a reality to it and a substance to it. And the substance is not just in terms of these uh, these kind of more conceptual issues I just laid out. It was also clear in the style, which is why he attracted all of these meme kids and message board kids and like, you know, 20 something um, internet native right. millennials. They picked up on this and they and liked on posters. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I think something that really strikes out to me, and I do think this is, a unifying trait between Yang and a lot of the other figures that you cover is the sense of locus of control. Because I think for a very brief time, maybe the post-war period, you could say that it existed to some degree since the Enlightenment, but really during the post-war period, there was this idea that the locus of control was given to the individual or rested upon the individual instead of of some uh, massive outside figure. Of course, this wasn't true around the world. It wasn't true in the Soviet Union, for example. Um, but at least in Western democracies, there was this sense where you really could be an agentic person. And of course, there are still agentic people today. But I feel like in politics, this kind of idea is drifting further and further away. We're drifting further and further towards a collective political model where we assume people's locus of control is largely external. And that's really what this kind of um, either illiberalism or post-liberalism, whatever you want to call it, that's really what this is looking towards, that most people, we're, we're going towards a world where most people don't have that much agency over their lives. So do you think that this is a correct assessment? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I think that the reasons for it are interesting and, and not strictly political insofar as a lot of this change that you're describing um, where the locus of control is moved from the individual toward, uh, you know, I, I noticed you didn't name an agent, right? You, you said collective, but... Um, I think people ought to be skeptical of collective models of control because they often conceal concentrations of power that would rather not be named. But clearly, uh, clearly there's something to what you're saying. I don't, I think it's driven as much by technological changes, perhaps more by technological changes than by, um, you know, a conscious rejection of one political philosophy or a conscious embrace of another political philosophy. You know, the telecommunications revolutions drive a lot of this. And uh, I wrote another piece about Joe Rogan. I'm trying to remember exactly how I put it, but essentially there's a line in there uh, about 
um, you know, the 20th century being about individuals and mass movements uh, and the 21st century being about these periodic effusions of uh, swarms, essentially, internet-driven social swarms. And that's a largely technological change. And that technological change tracks to political and ideological distinctions. Um, but I think that I, I think that if you're looking at what mid-century liberalism was about in terms of political economy, like what were the physical properties? What were the what were the the fixtures, the kind of um, economic material fixtures of that mid-century American liberalism? And then what do things look like today? The individual agency had a lot to do with the individual economic and therefore political power of a private sector middle class that um, doesn't exist in much of the United States anymore, that's been effectively eradicated in much of the United States. And it's been eradicated through a combination of uh, legislative and judicial decisions and through um, technological changes. Sometimes it's hard to tell uh, sort of where one ends and the other begins, but the, the power of that private sector middle class and defining the the social political consensus that was the kind of normative mid-century American liberalism doesn't exist anymore. And so then, so where is the agency now? If it's not in, you know, the kind of uh, middle class white collar professional or middle class uh you know, the, there was a blue collar middle class. There was a white collar middle class that was also, and this is critical, that was also regional, right? So a a, hmm. a, a white collar professional in Tennessee did not necessarily have identical political opinions and cultural psychosexual sensibilities uh, as a white collar professional in Northern California, right? These were people yes. that might've, might've uh, worked in the same field, uh, might've had similar levels of educational attainment on paper. Um, and, and likely actually their salaries were far closer than they would be now, right? The person in California would have, would have only been earning twice as much as the person in Tennessee or 1.5 times as much, not four times as much as might be the case now. Um, so they were, they were both part of the same kind of economic class, socioeconomic class, and yet retained these meaningful uh, differences of culture, of political orientation, et cetera. And those differences expressed themselves in the politics of the time and, and have now been largely illuminated um, through a combination of the Internet, uh, you know, the, the kind of institutional homogeny of the educational institutions in the United States. You know, more than likely, these people, members of the kind of broadly defined professional managerial class 
are far more likely to have virtually identical tastes, to shop at the same stores, probably, I say shop the same stores, probably for the most part, purchase the same types of products from uh, online uh, mass hegemon distributors, uh, retailers that also happen to control the back end of the U.S. government, right? So, so to wrap this up, uh, where has the control gone, right? Like that was what I asked originally in your model, if it's, we can see that there's less uh, interest in individual agency and more of a kind of collective process, where then has the power gone? And one of the places it's gone is into, um, you know, corporate sovereigns like Amazon that both, both control the retail market in the United States and effectively are partnered with the United States government, both its uh, forward-facing administrative agencies and its uh, secret and intelligence agencies, since uh, Amazon now provides the back end for a lot of that also. So that's just, it's simply a, a, a different structural model in that sense. Yeah. So something that at least I find to be very convincing is there's this case made in uh, George Dyson's book, Analogia, that this kind of enlightenment science, this kind of reasonable uh, understanding, the idea that we can use reason to draw truths, understandable, comprehensible truths from nature is a very fleeting thing. And if we look at the development of technology recently, it's basically been heading towards this kind of miasmatic, indiscernible state, where you have machine learning, of course, this is almost the epitome of this. We can take large data sets, we can draw amazing results, and we will have very little idea why or how this works. But in many other technologies as well, Medicine, certainly, although that has always been more of a black box than, say, uh, computing. Um, many, uh, many kind of hard technologies as well. Batteries. Although I do think there is more of a grasp there. But a lot of these processes are driving us from areas where even relatively lay people could process the forces at play. Think a, think a 11th grade high school student learning how uh, the Saturn V rockets work. But we're not in that world anymore. And so what this says about agency is that it was kind of a, it was kind of a head fake. That is a very short-lived head fake where we felt we had agency because we had the narratives and the tools to paper over a lot of the randomness and uncertainty in our lives. And that those tools are now being rewritten to be ones that don't paper over those uncertainties at all. And so we're not able to keep up this illusion. And I would, I would actually say that it was, it was kind of an illusion. Well, I, I'm so glad you said that. I think, uh, what I, I think it's very insightful what you just said and, and an astute comment, but uh, I, I disagree with your conclusion 
Um, it, I think you're making a category error. You, you should at least consider the possibility that you're making a category error insofar as you're implying that the meaningful exercise of control consists in eliminating randomness or unknowability from uh, human social processes. Whereas I would argue that it's precisely in the means by which we paper over them, as you put it, or restrain them or account for them, that we exercise our control. So the difference between uh, the, let's say, the, the medical black box and the you know, neural net machine learning black box is significant because in medicine, there were long procedures where perhaps empirically we knew that they worked, but we didn't know exactly why they worked, right? So famously, hand-washing uh, was a practice before germs were discovered, right? Before the, the germ theory of disease was understood, there were hygiene was known to be important, right? Not right. everywhere. Traditions of cleanliness in general, yeah. Precise. Very powerful. Precise. And the difference between those two kinds of black boxes is not just, it's not simply nor principally a function of their relative complexity. It's that one is capable of generating its own additional complexity and the other is not. The danger of the machine learning black box is not that it's more complex in a fixed sense. The danger of the machine learning black box is that it's capable of generating potentially ever-increasing degrees of complexity that not only obscure the mechanisms and processes by which it's executing whatever function it's assigned, but that ultimately will end up making it harder and harder to say what the hell the thing was supposed to be doing in the first place, right? And, and that oh, doesn't... Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. And I that, think this is very important. Yeah, that doesn't mean that the machine begins to exercise agency. I mean, the, the, the machine doesn't exercise agency, you know. Um, whatever my hangups about the liberal politics of the moment, I, I remain basically a humanist in terms of how I understand concepts like agency. I don't believe in anything like machine agency. I think it's a hoax. And I think it's a hoax perpetrated by uh, either people who have bought into forms of mystification um, or, you know, more in, a, in more sinister terms, um, a hoax perpetrated by people who benefit from those forms of mystification because in in focusing on terrifying uh, you know, machine consciousness, they take the focus off of their own control over those machines. So I, the, the thing that makes so, the thing that makes the social arrangements of the present uh, hapless, impotent, etc, is not the inability to understand, the technical processes at work, it, it's even more devilishly 
that the complexity of the tech, technical processes at work has vested more and more power into the people who, um, who, who do understand those technical processes and who can hide the ways in which the technical processes ultimately end up serving the same very limited, rather fixed set of human decisions and cost-benefit calculations that we have been grappling with since the dawn of civilization. So the loss of agency at the moment, while it certainly has a technological dimension, is not deterministic. It's not that the the machines have, um, have made it impossible for us to exercise agency. The machines have made it easy for us, enticing for us to divest ourselves and be divested of our agency as we come to believe that these are things over which nobody can exercise any control. But in fact, you know, the dollars go into certain bank accounts and not others. The machines are programmed by certain people and not others. They serve certain ends and not others. Decisions are being made every day. You might not be involved in those decisions. I'm certainly not involved in those decisions, but the machines are not making these decisions for themselves. There's a whole other you know, conversation to be had about like uh, where humans are in the decision-making cycle for machines insofar as like the control loop, as it were. But those are technical questions. They might bleed into existential questions, but they're not fundamentally existential. Um, or I don't believe that they're fundamentally existential, though I, I acknowledge that it's um, it's it's uh, it require it's faith on my part to say that to some extent I can't I can't offer a proof of it. But, uh, does that make sense? Yeah, certainly. And I think just one excellent example of the thing you're describing there where agency is hidden is uh, all of these all of these uh, COVID prediction models. And of course, Philippe Lumen has done great work. I hope to have him on the podcast soon, essentially dissecting these models and giving a very clear explanation that actually what's happened here is we assumed that the only major thing that can cause changes in case numbers is uh, is lockdowns or other non-pharmaceutical interventions. And then we ran the model. And as it turns out, if you assume the only thing that can cause changes are lockdowns, lockdowns seem like they cause a lot of changes. But that this, of course, is just built into the assumptions. It's not necessarily reflective of the data at all. And that's why when we, when we ran the test forward, when we actually looked at this in real life, those predictions, they were wildly off. And... Yes, I do think this is actually very, very important. That there is... There's this quote from the uh, now now candidate for prime minister or now candidate for leader of the Conservative Party, Pierre Polyev, uh, talking about uh, a corruption scandal, I think maybe six, seven years ago. No, it wasn't that far back. Maybe three or four. where he said complexity is the refuge of the scoundrel. That all of this strange bureaucracy, money shuffling, and so on, uh, when you have all of that, it becomes much easier to, well, the accusation in this case was essentially that a charity was paying off the government 
for for a contract. And I do think there's something there. There is something there where you can't really hide anything in hand washing, but you can hide a lot in this kind of deep tech, in this kind of in this kind of very very opaque and kind of kind of asymmetric, highly asymmetrically opaque system. I guess that leads us to some of the reactions to these types of technological or political developments. And one area of reaction that you've been very interested in covering, that I'm interested in uh, hearing about as well, is a new reaction. And we mentioned him earlier, uh, Curtis Yarvin. So what is the general... Let's let's look at this in a kind of diagnostic way. Which of these types of problems are neo reaction looking at, or neo reactionaries looking at, and what do they think about them? What do they think is the problem? Uh, I think neo reactionaries are certainly looking at the problem of individual agency versus collective um, decision making or collective political models. And their solution is that uh, essentially that individual agency was an illusion, uh, that liberalism therefore is founded on this illusion of um, the individual as a a suitable political agent for administering society. Collectivism they see as quite real, but, uh, but functionally hellish. And you know, they also imagine the one inevitably turning into the other. So liberal individualism being uh, kind of inherently demotic tends towards a kind of mobocracy, right? So you you start with this uh, kind of enlightened liberal individualism where uh, the, the liberal is a, a rational actor or the individual rather is a rational actor exercising judgment in a a kind of lofty way about uh, their own life, but you end up in a, a, some kind of collectivist hellscape Um, is a general, general arc you see in neo-reactionary thought. The solution to them is some kind of restoration of, aristocracy in a formalized sense. So to take Curtis Yarvin as a, you know, an illustrative case, because he's the premier neo-reactionary thinker of the present and has certainly had vastly more influence than any of the other um, neo-reactionaries who also get read. You know, Yarvin's argument essentially is that and this is an argument he takes most directly from a writer named James Burnham, but which is actually much older than Burnham and, you know, classical Greek antecedents. Uh, the idea basically though, is that all societies are oligarchies. All societies tend toward oligarchy insofar as power is always concentrated um, among either people with a greater will to power than their fellow citizens or people with greater capacities for the exercise of power. And so the advantage of 
some kind of aristocracy then is not that having a small number of people rule is greater than having a, a, a large mass of people who are too indecisive to rule in effect effectively. For instance, that's not the argument because according to Yarvin, we're already ruled by a small group of unelected, uh, you know, undemocratic officials in the form of this bureaucratic oligarchy. The preferable thing about aristocracy or, or something approaching aristocracy in the kind of Yarvin worldview is that it formalizes this system and so therefore makes it accountable and makes admission into the aristocratic class dependent on some kind of um, either hereditary principle, you know, Yarvin wouldn't subscribe to the hereditary principle, but but as some sort of uh, meritocratic basis or uh, some kind of sort of caste-based um, basis where essentially you have a, you know, I think the modern neo-reactionaries would probably want to make it based on something like some of them would make it based on IQ. Others would want to, I, I should say, actually, this is where there's a real division among the reactionaries between the ones who are more neo and the ones who are more reactionary. So <laughs> Yarvin, in his way, is more of a technocrat than he is a reactionary. You know, Yarvin is a kind of reactionary technocrat. He Interesting. Yeah, Yarvin basically believes in uh, corporatist technocracy. He believes in... Uh, he believes in technological progress as uh, as as being um, more or less durable. He believes in um, he believes in intellect and intelligence as a proper basis for administration. He believes in uh, you know he believes in the sort of techno capitalist model. And, you know, he can be sort of tongue-in-cheek about this sometimes, but that the tongue-in-cheek ways in which he embraces this are basically covers for the ways in which he's fundamentally sincere in this worldview. In other words, Yarvin has no desire to revert back to some kind of feudalist or um, 17th century model, even as he, uh, you know, calls himself a Jacobite and, and calls for the uh, you know, the Stuart monarchy and, and engages in, to call it cosplay would sound, would be unfair and a bit uh, too dismissive, but these are metaphors and analogies that he's using. And he doesn't mean that, that a pre-modern basis of social organization or pre-modern epistemology is better than the technological epistemology you know, explicitly. Whereas there are more sort of romantic literary reactionaries who view modernity itself as the problem and who recognize feudalism as being rooted fundamentally in a pre-liberal church uh, and castle-based epistemology where there are very strictly enforced limits on what kind of questions you ask uh, very strictly enforced, rigidly enforced aristocratic hierarchies. And so, you know, that's an important distinction. 
I would say all the power is with the people on Yarvin's side at the moment. Right. The other people are romantic characters of, I don't mean romantic as a good thing necessarily, but I mean, it's essentially a kind of aesthetic thing. It's not uh, political. Yeah, I certainly think, I mean, yeah, Teal, Vance, Masters, they're all... They're all kind of the uh, the more Yarvin side. I mean, maybe they wouldn't consider themselves neo reactionaries at all, but that's the kind of that's the kind of direction is the kind of techno techno capital, as you said, or I don't know who coined that term, but that kind of that kind of direction. Yeah, they're certainly in that orbit, and like Yarvin, a lot of what they're doing, and this is a point I didn't get to fully draw out my profile of Yarvin for tablet, which I think is important in terms of understanding what it means uh, practically, what it, what we mean when we talk about reactionary politics. You know, there's a whole history of reaction in the original sense means counter-revolutionary, right? This is where the idea of reaction comes from opposition to the French Revolution and opposition to the nationalist and liberal revolutions. Um and, uh, you know, you have figures like uh, DeMaist and, and, and um, later Thomas Carlyle and, and these figures who are counter-revolutionary romantics. Uh, and when you talk about reactionaries now in the American sense, yes, it preserves some of that broadly counter-revolutionary uh, spirit. And in the case of Yarvin, he applies that, you know, he has the uh, intellectual honesty to come out and say, yeah, you know, the American Revolution was a mistake, right? Which somebody like Vance is not going to say, but is the correct reactionary position, as it were, right? Um, because the American Revolution was a liberal revolution. And, and, and so I'm not suggesting that Vance is like, covering up his opposition to the American Revolution, I'm saying that there's a, still another distinction to be drawn, which is between reactionary in the kind of strict sense, and then what you could call the old right, which Yarvin is certainly invested in. And I think uh, people like Vance and Blake Masters and Teal are borrowing from in some sense. And the old right is the, the pre-war right, the pre-New Deal right. And so it's a much more explicitly anti-progressive right. There are some liberal elements of the old right insofar as it is, it defends private property. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry if this is like too inside baseball or too technical. No, but, certainly not. This is very okay. interesting. And I Good. think my audience will find it very interesting too. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So the, the, the terminological confusion, these terms have gotten so confused, it almost becomes difficult to talk about. But basically, the 19th century meaning of liberal was, especially in the kind of classic uh, Manchester variety, was was very much rooted explicitly in private property rights um, and had much less to do with the kind of later editions, uh, people like J.S. Mills even, um, and these sort of broader uh, sort of missionary liberal worldviews or, or liberal epistemologies. Now, there's a broader tradition of liberalism that uh, 
that really is about epistemology. But in the political sense, just to focus on that for a second, there's a lineage that goes from liberals to modern libertarians, right, which stays connected to private property as being the most important thing in a sense, right? So whereas there's this sort of mid-20th century merger, early 20th century merger of liberalism and progressivism in a way that uh, takes liberalism away from the strict focus on individual uh, property rights and the strict focus on protection from the state, right, and merges it with the much more expansive, crusading, progressive ideology, which wants to use the state um, to achieve these particular social ends. Insofar as liberalism and progressivism merge in that way, libertarianism in the American variety remains more connected to this older 19th century version of liberalism. So hopefully that's still clear so far. So if you take that forward to somebody like um, like Thiel or Yarvin, for that matter, who both start off their political trajectories in the kind of uh, – libertarian, but also Austrian school libertarian space specifically, they're still connected to this uh, private property uh, tradition of liberalism and libertarianism, but they end up connecting that also to what's called the old right, meaning the right in America before liberalism sort of merged with progressivism and became hegemonic and turned the establishment right, and here I'm sort of paraphrasing the worldview of these people, and turned the establishment right into uh, not a genuine opposition, but merely a minority faction of the ruling party, what they derisively refer to as, um, what is it? Uh, conservative. I believe Yarvin calls them the, uh, the Mensheviks. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mensheviks is perfect, right, in the sense that Menshevik means minority, um, no, Jesus, Menshevik means majority, so it's it's perfect in that sense. Bolshevik is the um, minority. No, I think it's the other way. I think it's the other oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. It's the other way. M.M. Yeah, but right. the idea is that the, the Mensheviks were kind of uh, a slightly more moderate communism, right? Sort of, sort of. Yeah, that's how – I mean, and, that's uh, not they, actually right, – right, this is not exactly true, but that's certainly how Yarvin sees it, right? But they were also yeah. the majority is what I meant to say, though – Though it means minority, they were actually had the the numbers. Um, yeah, to, to clarify this up to uh, to the listeners, there was kind of a there was a political trick that was played here, where uh, the Bolsheviks, even though they had uh, smaller smaller numbers, they had less people in their movement. Uh, they called themselves uh, Bolsheviks, Bolsha meaning uh, meaning like larger, uh, and, and they called their opponents the Mensheviks, even though uh, they had more numbers on their side. It was uh, a very shrewd political move. Right, right. There's a great uh, short book about this by um, that gets into this Richard Pipes. I think it's uh, the Three Whys of the Russian Revolution. It's only like 150 pages, um, worth checking out. Um, but uh, sorry, but I, yeah, I, that's that's quite apt. Yeah. I think that analogy or that comparison is quite apt because I think much like. Marxism, which was a reaction. I, I do think it was more of a reaction 
it, it's strange because it's kind of it's kind of now rebranded as this kind of very progressive thing. But I feel like it was very much a reaction to industrialization and the dissatisfaction that came along with that. I feel like we're getting a new, either a revival or a or a new thing entirely of a type of mass dissatisfaction. And that's exactly what this kind of illiberal or post-liberal or neo-reactionary and the kind of like modern modern communists or Marxists, um, the actual ones, they're all gaining a draw because of this type of alienation. And I'm wondering why you think that alienation is there, right? We've we've talked about some of the factors here, the loss of agency, the power being more vested in opaque technologies and so on and so forth. But what are the kind of touch points? What are the kind of uh, narratives, the kind of individual stories where someone looks at this thing happening and says, okay, I want to become a new reactionary now? I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think part of this has to do with, um, you know, to put it in crude terms, a lot of this has to do with how much free time you have to spend online. If you're looking at a single indicator, I think that would probably be the best single indicator of who is drawn into, uh, uh, let's say, who's drawn into illiberal ideologies of any varieties. Like time spent online, I I would guess, is probably a better indicator than education level or race or age group or or anything else. But, uh, um. I, I think that the alienation is a response to the genuinely alienating circumstances of uh, how American society has set up its institutions and its communities and, um, and the ways in which people have available to them the most I mean, it all, in a sense, comes down to work and family. I mean, it all, in a sense, always comes down to work and family. And there are fewer meaningful opportunities to engage in work that's both remunerative to the point where you can raise a family and that also feels um, connected in, in some way to the sort of useful processes of life. So, um, you know, I, I think that there are more and less alienating kinds of work. And certainly that was something that, uh, you know, the first two waves of industrialization seemed to suggest. And also that the, the ways in which it's become more difficult to to be part of um, be part of communities to form families has run parallel to and I without even getting into the cause and effect just saying that they've happened in parallel for now that has happened in parallel with much larger long-term social campaigns aimed at demonizing and delegitimizing 
traditional communities and families. And, um, you know, that would sound conspiratorial if it wasn't so easy to find progressives uh, saying. Yeah, this I, I don't think it's conspiratorial as, at all. Well, there's a double game that gets played, though, right? Where liberals pretend that it's conspiratorial while at the same time ho-humming when the progressives to their left do it. So there's a whole no, class but we're, we're of talking about we're talking about like explicit yeah. campaigns against tradition, right? These aren't so subtle. It's like saying like it's it's like saying like pro-lifers had a had a conspiracy to like overturn Roe Ro v. Wade. Like they were talking about it constantly, everywhere. All of the time, it's not it's not hidden at all, and I think it's the same deal here. And this isn't to say that this is necessarily a bad thing. I think some traditions are wrong, some traditions are right, and I'm sure we'll discuss those as well. But like the, the idea that this is like conspiratorial, that's very silly to me. I agree, and I, I'm glad to hear um, you see it that way. But I think you have to acknowledge that there were. Uh, many people for many years, prominent people, centrist liberals more or less, whose main function was to pretend that these things were not happening um, while making it easier for them to happen. So their main function was to, I mean, you can look at the sort of easiest recent example was campus radicalism, right? Mm, there was a whole yes. class of people, a whole class of writers at Vox, and the New Republic, the New New Republic, Slate, where, wherever, these sort of more or less uh, center-left publications when center-left was still a meaningful designation, the New York Times, the Washington Post, etc. And these were people who did not endorse all of the claims of the campus radicals, right? Rather, what they did was poo-poo the notion that the campus radicals who were pushing for mandatory safe spaces or who were, um, you know, insisting on uh, the kind of continual expansion of uh, compulsory transgender pronoun usage or who were um, labeling uh, mathematics, uh, uh, white supremacist, um, the, the people who are engaged in these campaigns, they didn't endorse their claims. They said, ah, oh, they're not so important. It's merely right-wing hysteria to make too much of them. Now, 85% of the people who were doing that 10 years ago have now moved on to endorsing their claims because that's, how, <laughs> that's the dialectic. That's how it works. Another 15% has sort of moved on to, um, you know, kind of people like Matt Iglesias who have moved on to uh, offering some very mild criticism of those claims without um, really acknowledging at all their role in in laundering and legitimizing those claims, but but that that was not insignificant, and the degree to which that has fundamentally transformed the conditions of like normal people's lives who are who are not engaged in these pitched ideological battles, but who live downstream of them is hard to overstate, I think. And, um, and so it operates on two levels. On one level, I think it's alienating to live in a society where there's a, there's a continual kind of paranoid relationship toward 
the basic foundations of uh, leading a contented life. You know, like I, I, yeah. I, I hate to um, to tell this to people. I'm being facetious. I don't hate to tell it to people at all, but I, people should understand. I think it's a mark of maturity to understand that uh, radical individualism is not a path to contentment. It might be a necessary, might be necessary and valuable and, and important as a means of experimentation and wild truth seeking. And, you know, I'm an artist. I don't look down on those things at all. But that's not, it's not the same as what makes you happy. And yeah, I want to put a pin into that sure, because that's sure. definitely something incredibly important to talk about. But before we go there, I do want to. I do want to push back a little bit on the kind of on the kind of idea that it is it is fully a kind of slippery slope because I think some things are a slippery slope and we're we're continuing them but some things just stopped and we were kind of correct in saying that this was not a problem and and by we I mean kind of like the the center left folks which I still do identify at least a little bit with because I mean here here's Here's the case I would make, right? Um, I, I would say that most of the things that perpetuated were things in the kind of administrative or bureaucratic s- state, or not just the state as in the government, but also these kind of uh, corporations and so on and so forth. That's what's continued. Uh, and, and there are some things that haven't continued. And that's a lot of what was done um, what was done in actual politics. So for example, um, we are we are ended up, we ended up, largely not defunding the police at all. There are some there are some local officials um, where Republicans never had a chance where, the, where um, that happened. Some of them reversed it. And Biden provided more funding for police, right? So as a kind of like, or from, from the kind of like center left perspective, you would say that like a lot of these situations, there are kind of overplayed or overgeneralized situations where uh, a lot of people who really aren't that bad like i would say biden is not that bad uh and i would say that i mean like inflation that is a problem but that's kind of like a normal politics problem that's not really like a that's not really like a progressivism gone wild problem um and he could be better on that for sure but that a lot of especially the kind of right-wing news cycle does play some parts out to be much more uh, sorry about that to be much more destructive or to be much more widespread than they actually are. And that discerning between these things properly, not falling for a kind of dogmatic approach, because I do think there is a lot of problems, especially with not necessarily even the neo-reactionaries, but the kind of mainstream right, where they're just kind of dysfunctional and misled. I talked to Richard Hanania about this, kind of impulsively jumping jumping at the bit whenever there's a chance, I think it creates an environment where you you can't do politics and you can't do policy. You're just constantly reacting and there's no kind of coherent thought there. Sorry, I made like three different no, points no, and I didn't I really think, stop for a response uh, between any of them. That's all well taken. And I think that the distinction you're drawing between the bureaucratic and administrative policies on the one hand and the uh, cultural ideological ferment, on the other hand, is an important distinction. But uh, I don't 
I don't, uh, I don't think a neat distinction. So to my mm. mind, the only thing about let's, you know, you want to call it wokeness or the successor ideology, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the only thing that matters about the sort of activist social justice movement that is uh, explicitly, you know, quasi totalitarian in its aims, the only thing that matters about it is the bureaucratic administrative dimension. Now, that's an overstatement, but insofar as I don't mean to suggest that the ideas are irrelevant, but the ideas are not ultimately powerful. So when I say the only thing that matters, what I mean Mm -hmm. is that if you're trying to distinguish between alarmist news cycles or or a kind of endless volley of culture war bullshit and you know politics and policies that are truly impactful you have to look at what the bureaucracy does uh so in that sense i disagree with you and i disagree with the larger contention that Biden is basically a reasonable figure of the center left and has been an effective kind of restraint on wokeness. Um, There's no, the distinction doesn't exist anymore, actually. So the conceptual distinction I just made, rather, I should say, the conceptual distinction still exists. Institutionally, the distinction doesn't exist at the national level. At the local level, there are Democrats who are operating legitimately outside of this. At the national level, to to talk about the Democratic Party, the DNC, wokeness, whatever, you're just using, you're just describing different different wings of the same structure, right? What what did Biden do in terms of wokeness under the Obama administration? He was the guy who pushed Title IX. Right. It's uh, Biden was the one who pushed the radical expansion of regulatory power based on very crude ideas of gender discrimination that ended up empowering college bureaucracies, vastly expanding the uh, the bureaucratic um, power and um, payroll at universities in service of what was basically a, a kind of um, gender, you know, a, a kind of gender ideology uh, view. Or, I, I don't think it was quite <clears throat> that. Like Title IX was, like most people refer to, okay, let me just clarify a few th- terms for the audience. So, so the Title IX thing was mainly around claims of uh, sexual harassment or rape. And it essentially instituted a bureaucratic regime in a lot of these well, universities. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. That's, That's huh? not exactly the case. No, it was about uh, it, it. Title IX was not principally um, just about. You, you're talking about the the uh, what was it, dear administrator letter? Yeah, the dear colleague letter. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I, I thought sorry, that was what you were talking about as well. Well, that's one aspect okay, my bad. of it, though. That's one aspect of it. Um, no, so Title IX is a much older. Uh, a yeah. much older regulation that has to do with um, discrimination based on sex and then later on gender identity, right? And the the uh, the the kind of procedures for dealing with claims of sexual assault 
we're one part of this, of what came out of it, but it's, it's broader than that. So anyway, I didn't mean to, uh, to cut you off there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just, just clarifying, essentially there were some title nine is, as you said, uh, this, uh, sex discrimination and later read more as gender discrimination, uh, part of, uh, the civil rights act and what it essentially, uh, I mean, my interpretation of what the Obama administration did was that they they created this environment where there were strong pressures in one direction to essentially deal with these claims and not necessarily any kind of rigor in terms of verifying whether those claims were factual or not, um, and that this was the major that was the, this was the major thing. I, I don't think the gender identity stuff really became a thing until post Obama, right? At least not in kind of like the public debate. Gender identity didn't, but sex was in it from the beginning. So in other words, mm. like the explicitly sort of gender ideology view of gender identity being something distinct from sex um, was part of, I, I might be getting the timeline slightly wrong, but I think you're right, comes, it's basically like after uh, Trump had repealed some of the executive orders that Biden reinstated them. And that became more explicit, but it was there implicitly because the original Title IX regulations dealt with um, sex. It just hadn't yet graduated to the point where it uh, was making this distinction between biological sex and gender identity. Um, but I, I, there are other examples. I mean, I think that the Title IX um, is a pretty clear example, but it's not the only one. So if you look at the expansion of the counter extremism, counter uh, what's now being pushed as domestic terrorism was once countering violent extremism is now these counter domestic terrorism programs, which are um, functionally part of the same sort of broad campaign as these disinformation um agencies like the one that was just, you know, quote unquote, put on pause in the Department of Homeland Security, what they're all doing is expanding the intrusive surveillance and regulatory powers of the state to police private American citizens on the basis of ideology and on the basis of uh, ideological uh kind of strictures and diktats that change fairly often and that are essentially used as mechanisms to um, punish political dissent. Now, can you find like hysterical right-wing versions of this in the right-wing news? Yeah, of course you can. But I mean, the news cycle is the news cycle. So the right-wing news is playing off largely most of the right-wing is playing off the same kind of crude impulses that's driving the left-wing news. And so I just, I don't know how far it gets you to say that like these things are being overstated or, or there's a kind of right-wing hysteria about some of this stuff, only insofar as I take that for granted. So it's incumbent on you, on me, on your listeners, on anyone to try and filter out the hysteria, which is why I say it's important in these cases to look at what is actually becoming part of law or unofficial law 
since bureaucracies enact unofficial laws um, versus what is purely discursive, what is purely a matter of, of rhetoric. And, you know, with the defund the police stuff, it's a thank, you know, thank God that there's been some correction to some of this. But, you know, we're also in the midst of a historically unprecedented murder spike in the United States. Right. So it's one Mm. thing to say that there's been some pushback on this, but the pushback has not saved the lives of of the, the people who've been um, murdered because um, there were just clear, obvious changes, not just at the level of departmental policy, but at, the, at a kind of uh, meta social cultural level to how people understand the legitimacy of policing. The White House. I mean, hold hold up, hold up. There's this meme. There's this meme that I saw about basically like every single every single chart in all for the rest of time will have like a star uh, around like 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic. I I think it's quite difficult to to say like to give a causal explanation of like why why there is increased, uh, particularly like past the kind of summer period, why there's this increased crime. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can draw a kind of, especially a monocausal explanation, but I think it's still like completely up in the air why this is actually happening. Yeah, you can say that if you want. You'll be making the same argument that people made back in the 1980s and 1990s when they argued that it was impossible to say what drove the spikes in crime then. So, Wait, I just, but there is actually like an alternate hypothesis here, yeah, of course, right? There's an alternate there, hypothesis there's... then. You should be aware, you should just be aware that this is not um this is an older argument um yeah but i think like there was nothing back then that was as salient as the pandemic is now like says you like the drastic changes of life like okay there was no period in time where where we were kind of like mandated or like uh business closures really like a very strong enforcement regime where we were kind of shut in shut in our homes right like that that's something that is something that is is new uh, yeah, no, that was very new, and I have no doubt that that had an effect. Uh, I don't look. You're right that there's not a monocausal, uh, there's not a simple monocausal explanation. Am I saying that there's a clear correlation between a massive nationwide, uh, you know, uh, essentially anti-policing movement that was legitimated by? the most prestigious institutions of the liberal press and was uh, treated at the very least as a kind of um, totemically uh, sacred cause by the the leaders of the Democratic Party and the ensuing spike in violent crime. Yeah, I'm definitely saying I think that there is a a strong correlation and, you know, there there are any number of... um, there's evidence to support that, and one part of that evidence is that the the spike has persisted beyond the lifting of lockdown restrictions and essentially the end of um, pandemic restrictions, and it doesn't track to the severity of lockdown restrictions. So if the argument is that, hey, the pandemic caused this, you'd expect to see that the higher spikes in uh, the rate of violent crime, because again, 
the, here's the other part of it. You would expect that if it was related to the pandemic, primarily, if that was the dominant cause, why is it only violent crime that's going up? That's not obvious. Maybe there's an explanation. I don't have it. But in any event, my larger point is that um, is not about what caused this. It's about the relationship of the leadership of the Democratic Party to these things. And I'm not saying that, like, Biden was a defund the police guy. He obviously wasn't. I don't think that the White House has that much effect on this one way or the other. And I'm skeptical, to say the least, of this idea that um, the White House has been a moderating influence and is sort of pushing back against the radical or progressive wing of the party. I think that's a bit naive. Yeah, I do want to save some time for a topic that I think we have a lot more agreement on. So I'll just give a I'll just give a quick statement and then give you the give you the last word on this and then we'll just move on, I guess. Sure. Uh, but really I do see this kind of problem where there's just a lumping of all kind of there's there are really different factions in my eyes of like covid uh covid hawks and um and obviously the quote unquote woke and then like neoliberals or like centrist democrats uh and then a kind of like apathetic democratic base uh where i think these are hyper distinct groups and the differences between them uh are vital in the political incentives that exist uh and I would say I'm, I'm going to link probably, or I'm definitely going to link one of my articles uh, called "The Firehose of Bullshit" about how these different groups interact and the incentives that they create. But I really do see a very noticeable difference between, especially Democratic politicians and and especially Democratic Party voters, who are kind of more centrist, who are more neoliberal, who just believe in a regime of kind of soft redistribution. Uh, a kind of uh, civil, uh, a kind of uh, civil liberties type argument, and uh, they, I do think they kind of play into this kind of technocracy sometimes. But I do think there are just different groups, and there's a struggle over internal power, and there are like primaries. You can see this happening, and there are like internal bureaucratic fights over things like uh, department nominations and such. And there's games of influences that are played, but it's 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 not like there's there's one there there's one thing that that's what I would say. There's one thing. <laughs> there's only one. No, look, the, your your first point, I I totally agree with. Right. So, insofar as you're talking about the divisions between Democratic Party voters and the National Party. Not only do I agree with you, I, I think if anything, that's not strong enough. The divisions between mm. Democratic Party voters and the National Party are so great as to be irreconcilable, which is why the party is bleeding voters, right? which is why the party is losing historic numbers of Hispanic voters, for instance, who are poised to um, – uh, you know, flip some seats red in the midterm elections that are coming up. There's a vast divide between the national party base, the the sort of liberal activist base, which has pulled the party way to the left and which is sort of largely um, 
progressive managerial in its orientation. And then the average Democratic Party voter who, as you're describing, is like pro-free speech, not anti-capitalist, wants a more fair and equitable system of capitalism, not anti-police, right, but wants more fair and equitable policing. I mean, this is the, the single most salient phenomenon. So I don't want to suggest at all that I'm lumping in ordinary uh, registered Democrats in, in the kind of thing I've been describing. I mean, for what it's worth, I'm also I'm a registered as a Democrat, and, and obviously I wouldn't fit that. But I, I think I'm also, you know, I'm an outlier, a journalist, whatever. I'm hardly an ordinary voter, but ordinary voters couldn't be more alienated from the party in that sense. And the way the party deals with that is by placating them with these sort of uh, uh, fake uh, sort of head faints in, in, in both directions. Um, but that's a, that's a major, major divide, and it exists across all of these um, kind of key issues. If you just look at the policing stuff we were talking about a second ago, you know, you would not have known it from listening to most national politicians in the summer of uh, 2020. Um, or for the year after that, and certainly not from reading the New York Times or the Washington Post or um, other publications like that. But poll after poll showed that most black voters, most uh, black Americans were not anti-police, right? And that, in fact, uh, repeated polls showed that people wanted more and better policing, right? And... So there was a genuine desire for police reform of a sort. There was a genuine desire for less abusive, less intrusive policing, which I think actually could have turned into a real, um, if not bipartisan, then at least a more popular national cause that didn't have to be explicitly racially divisive in the way that it was presented and could have actually brought people together. Um, but but that's different. These, you know, in another obvious example, this is almost too obvious, but, you know, the kind of Latinx stuff, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you on these so the, Those are voter party div- divisions. Where I disagree with you is on the salience or significance of these divisions within the party. Within the party, disputes over who gets what nomination or who gets what seat or, or local races – um, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't deny that they make a difference. I don't deny that, um, there are real differences at play here, but the differences are far less significant than the, the degree of top down, uh, hegemony and control that's exercised. This is why this is dangerous. This is why I'm so invested in it because I think that it's, um, destroying human freedom, destroying the possibilities for difference and meaningful disagreement. And that's, uh, I find distasteful and and dangerous. And that's why I call attention to it. So on the one hand, I think you're right about uh, the differences being important between the party and the voters. On the other hand, within the party itself, I think Look, the last uh, final thought, I don't want to go on and on more than I already have, but we're not just talking about uh, what exists 
sort of technically in terms of the outcomes of particular races. We're talking about the overall orientation of the party itself and of the politics associated with the Democrats, which is explicitly geared towards control and establishing a centralized, top-down locus of control, punishing disagreement, punishing dissent, imposing a kind of rigid ideological conformity, which is then enforced through these regulatory apparatuses like a Department of Homeland Security or like the U.S. Postal Service taking on surveillance duties for the security agencies as uh, you know, was exposed last year, and as is enforced on an even more informal level by uh, social media and by uh, non-governmental bureaucracies across the country that are in some way tied to the government for their funding and legitimacy. So there, what's important is the, the control. All right. Uh, as as I promised, th- those were certainly some very hard-hitting points, but as I promised, uh, you have the last word on that topic. And uh, s- so the next thing that I'm just very interested on, and I am really glad that I stumbled upon this, is uh, one on to uh, your uh, podcast episode on uh, the Manifesto podcast, uh, where you talked about uh, this uh uh, this uh, Jewish classic, I think, the, my quarrel with Hirsch Rasseyer. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Close enough, yeah. And it really was a kind of parable, I think, about the nature of reason and the nature of reason in a kind of in the kind of overlapping regions between the secular and religious world. In this case, in this case. Um, uh, Judaic world. So the question I want to ask here is uh, first give a give a kind of short explanation of uh, that story, and then, uh, and then I want to ask how this kind of story situates itself in our kind of current liberal-ish society. Yeah, I have to thank our guest on that episode, the great Joseph Keegan, um, for bringing that story in. It, it's an incredible story. You know, I hope you'll include a link to it. People can read it. It's not too. I well. certainly will. Great. Yeah, by a, a Yiddish writer named Chaim Grade, and uh, and I, I'm supposed to summarize the story now, right? Okay. So basically, <laughs> it's it's. Uh, I think it took me like 40 minutes to summarize on the podcast. I'll try and do it a bit quicker here, but it's essentially yeah. about two, uh, these two Orthodox Jews who grew up together um, in a particular uh, strain of, of Orthodox Judaism. It's not so important to get into here, but the, the significant thing is that they are, this is before the war. They know each other as children and they have this, um, disagreement um, that starts between uh, the two of them, and uh, and and I, I'm trying to remember where it's set at the beginning. Do you happen to to recall? I think uh, where it's set. No, I'm sorry. 
Yeah, okay. Well, somewhere in uh, the kind of greater Russian Empire, let's say. Um, but basically, there's this uh, dispute between these two childhood friends, one of whom is the kind of representative, it, it is drawn towards um, secular enlightenment, let's say, and the other uh, of whom is um, a keeper of the faith and uh, continues to believe very strongly in the um, the Jewish covenant with God and, and in his own duty to uphold that and, and in the and in the the ultimate authority of the Torah. And uh, they're separated. The religious friend ends up um, being sent to a concentration camp during the Holocaust. He survives the camp and, uh, and not only survives, but maintains his belief in God. And years later, years after uh, the beginning of this quarrel between the two of them, the secular friend is in uh, Paris on a train and he recognizes the religious friend on this metro in Paris and kind of, a, a, you know, accosts him, but in a, in a friendly way. And they go sit together in a park. And as they're sitting together in a park, they continue this argument that they've been having for all these years, separated by decades, by the Holocaust, by the camps. And the argument is about where one's obligations are and, and whether ultimately one can find the truth only within the religious tradition with its the ultimate authority of the Torah and the divine text, or whether that's a kind of um, not only a limited, but perhaps even a, a cowardly attitude and whether you know, the real search for truth has to acknowledge the bravery of, of the poets and the artists like our secular character in the story who are willing to pursue, um, willing to pursue the truth wherever it takes them, even if it takes them away from God and, and toward blasphemies. And, uh, and yeah, and that's, that's the heart of the story is the quarrel. Hmm. And actually, I want to get your take on this first before giving mine, but what's, what ways would we change our life after reading the story in the, in the world we live in right now? I'm not sure I understand the question. What, how would I change my life? After? Maybe I'll give, maybe I'll give my answer first. Sure. Because the virtue that stuck out to me the most was this, which is very strange because it's a very, it's a very well-written, very well-articulated quarrel, but it really dances around or maybe dances, dances uh, directly with this idea of an inarticulable insight, right? An insight that can't be explained, that can't be crafted into words uh, that can't be uh, that can't be processed by this kind of uh, purely purely rational in the Weberian sense, this purely rational world. And I feel like it's it's really the best articulation of something that 
maybe it's maybe it's quite uh, disconnected in most people's minds, but which is this kind of like uh, this really kind of like shape rotator instinct, this instinct that I think exists in basically every mathematical field. And I think in a lot of kind of uh, pursuits of thought where it does feel like chasing an instinct, chasing uh, something sacred, really, of having having some kind of calibration, having some kind of understanding of the world that drives where you lay out your arguments, where you uh, seek truth, and how you seek that truth that can't be embedded into, say, a proof in the math sense, or can't be embedded in, say, an essay, or in uh, a kind of like rationalist description of the world. And what I really drew from this is that there is, and and something that really strikes me is that um, Hirsch really kind of articulates this well, right? He it's kind of this paradox where he's articulating this description of things that are unarticulable. And that is what really strikes me. And so my answer to the question would be something along the lines of there are things that are, that are sacred, if you want to use that word. And here I'm speaking to my audience, or at least things that are, things that are, uh, inarticulable uh incomplete in the kind of godel sense uh that you do want to hold on to and that you do want to cherish I am sorry if I just spoke for something like eight minutes straight. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I was very interested in what you were saying. I'm not sure I heard a question, though. I, uh, I can respond. Oh, right. Let me so. just let me just repeat the question sure. because I want to ask the same question that I just answered, which is basically like, I mean, there are so many incredibly valuable insights that I think apply apply directly to how we reason about the world now. So I would ask you the same question that I just answered, which is what what kind of insight do you do you kind of walk away with do you read the story and then say like okay this is this is something that i'm going to that i'm going to persist into the future that i'm going to keep with me uh yeah well i mean uh, certainly the story had a lasting impression on me so i don't need to i don't need to get too philosophical to answer that because um you know, my own experience is a testament to the fact that it stuck with me. And I, I suppose the, you know, it's the quarrel that stuck with me more than a particular mm. insight. It doesn't resolve the quarrel for me. It dramatizes the quarrel, which is what great fiction does. Um, and there's a way in which the truth emerges from the quarrel not from, uh, you know, that's the, that's the poetic truth. The poetic truth consists in the, the appreciation of this kind of irresolvable tension. And I, I think that one of the things to consider, a question to take away is um, whether it's 
possible for a truth to be worthy of being called sacred if you've um, arrived at it yourself. Uh, so in other words, um, to take a line from the story, there's a point where after the secular character has delivered this rousing speech on behalf of the nobility of uh, secular writers such as himself who have, you know, not merely tried to pursue the truth through their work, let's say, but who have taken real risks for it. The, uh, the rabbi character says uh, something along the lines of, you know, he tells a story about somebody that they, were, they had smuggled a Torah into the camps, uh, Torah being the Hebrew Bible, the sacred text for Jews, and, and risked his life for the Torah. And he's saying to the secular friend, would, would any of your poets have risked their lives for a, a piece of paper on which they wrote a poem? Or for Shakespeare, for that matter, or for Chaucer? Would anybody risk their life to protect Chaucer? So it's not to deny the power of Chaucer. And, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, people with enlightened ethical worldviews might regard it as an advancement, a moral advancement that nobody should have to sacrifice themselves for a text. But there is, it is difficult to imagine something over which we can understand, something over which we, we can see the fully human fingerprints, you know, like where the human agency is totally transparent. It's hard to imagine truly accepting that as sacred, you know? And so um, maybe the Torah is not your sacred text, but uh, if you want to uphold the sacred in your own life, it's worth considering what its sources are and what the possible sources are for the truly sacred rather than, than the... Uh, the vaunted or the valuable. Maybe that's a bit esoteric, but hopefully that made sense. Right. And I think there's a desire for that, right? That that rolls into that kind of post-liberalism or kind of reaction that this kind of this kind of construction of technologies that govern whole swaths of lives is obscuring something very important, obscuring something that we should not lose. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I agree with that 100%. And to your earlier point about why people are feeling alienated at the moment, uh, part of it is the, you know, the destruction of the foundations of the sacred to include the family. And some of this is just a human a civilizational process, you know, to, to make it out as if this was like a whole deliberately affected by the left as part of a grand ideological program, I think is um, deceptive and short-sighted. Some of this is human beings, human societies, really human societies have to continually renegotiate their relationship to the sacred. It's not things. Yes. It's historically contingent, and we're in a moment now where it 
its foundations have been eroded and the traces of it are being lost to some extent and need to be recovered. And you know, there, I have no doubt that there are people who feel like they're living meaningful, happy lives um, without any sense of it or without God and who are perfectly content in their atheism. But maybe they should consider that uh, that doesn't work for everyone. Yeah, I think that I would agree with that. I don't know how to. Okay, here here is maybe an articulation going back to the difficulty of this thing, um, the difficulty of articulating it, but that's the sacred does need to be situated in a specific time and place. And that when you kind of dilute it, especially if you make it universal, I mean, a synonym of universal is is uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, right? Um, that kind of makes it impossible to cohere or even something deeper than to cohere, but to it, uh, it creates that kind of disenchantment. And it not only it on, not only creates a potential for that disenchantment, but makes it a certainty, I think. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that, but uh, <laughs> things being everywhere all at once, all the time, the the permanency of that state, you know, the kind of indefinite, you know, it's like you're permanently universal and ephemeral at the same time. Sort of the more globalized things get, the more ephemeral they become, right? The instantaneousness mm. um, is a form of transience. And lasting things have to be rooted in particular places and in particular times. And then you say, well, if it's rooted in a particular time, isn't that ephemeral? No. Why? Because of the chain of human uh, connections, another word for, for family and community that persists over time. And um, how do you restore that? I mean, I, I don't have the answers, but all I can say is just as an observer, I don't, I'm not trying to be a, you know, I'm not trying to like endorse a particular program or religious outlook or anything like that. I don't, I don't have the answers definitively. I just notice that people are unhappy and in need of something that seems to have, um, seems to have been somewhat carelessly uh, taken apart without any regard for what it was providing and what might be able to replace it. Hmm. On that note, I have the last question of the show, which is, what is something that has too much chaos and needs more order or has too much order and needs some more chaos? What a great question. Um, okay, well, I, it's that's I would say that uh, popular art at the moment is suffocated by order, um, stifled by a uh, compulsory regime of orderliness, and is desperately in need of more chaos. And I would say that. Um, the uh, the emotional 
the emotional lives and emotional relationships between um, Americans under 40 seem to me to be uh, chaotic in ways that cause them great pain and offer little consolation and satisfaction and, and are uh, people's emotional lives and their romantic lives are desperately in need of more order and they would find much greater satisfaction and they would find much greater romance in that order. You know, like the, the formlessness is sexlessness, you know, like the, the, the void, the formless void of a kind of purely chaotic, purely um, uh, uh, emotionally impulsive approach to love and sex and human relationships is ultimately totally sexless, you know? That is a, that is a very interesting contradiction. Uh, I'm not sure I completely understand, but uh, certainly, certainly uh, the dating, the dating uh, scene life, has a uh, has not been great for uh, for me or for anyone in my generation. <laughs> I, yeah, I wish on that you note, all better luck. Yeah, thank you very much <laughs> for you. having me on. This is a it's been a, an interesting and rewarding conversation. Thanks for coming on, and I hope that uh, I'll be able to have you again on the future for uh, another quarrel. Sounds good. I look forward to it. That was our conversation with Jacob Siegel. A recurring problem in these last few episodes is that we run out of time without having the full, intense debate. Of course, there's only so much time in a day or in a podcast interview, even if it lasts two, three, or four hours. And there's only finitely many things that we can talk about. There's always more to be had, and I appreciate any constructive criticism that you might have. The most important thing, in my view, is to give both myself, but also my guest, a fair and clear shot at articulating the position in a way that represents what they truly intend, no matter what their positions are. I think I accomplished that in this episode, and while we may not have a full getting to the very bottom of things discussion, it was still certainly worth the quarrel. As always, if you like the episode, share with a friend, let them know, tell them about a new opportunity to learn and to enjoy the podcast. It obviously helps us, but it helps the people in your life as well. I'll be back next week with yet another great episode.